2: Welcome to True Crime Garage, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always is a man who still has zero toilet paper. He is
0: the captain. But I still have a lot of leaves. It's good to be seen and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend.
2: All right, I'm excited because we are lucky enough to be sipping on cold cans of beautifully crafted Dortmunder gold. This is a smooth lager that strikes a delicate balance between sweet malt and dry hop flavors. Garage grade, a big five bottle caps. And big thanks goes out to our Garage Beer Fund friends. First up, cheers to Robin and Alicia in Plymouth, New Hampshire.
0: And a big shout out to Christopher B. and Parts Unknown.
2: Also in the parts that are unknown, Captain, we have Craig F. Next, we have Kelly and Honey Bear. And Tampa, this, of course, begs the question, Captain, who do you think is sweeter, Kelly or Honey Bear?
0: I think neither. I think Justine from Upway, Australia is sweeter.
2: And last but certainly not least, we have Amy in Smyrna, Tennessee. Amy says she has listened to every single episode of True Crime Garage.
0: And if you haven't listened to every episode, check us out on the Stitcher app. You can listen for free every show. And we have a bonus show called Off the Record on Stitcher Premium. And that is enough of the business.
2: All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. That one thing that very quickly comes up in most profiles, the, the level of concealment of the victim, of the body, often indicates how well known the offender was to the victim, how close the two were related. And where we, where we have here, if tying the bodies up post-mortem, making smaller packages, making sure that those packages stay under the water— uh, It it really conceals the bodies, and it's somebody taking on added risk to themselves getting caught by taking that time to conceal the bodies in this manner. If it were some maniac from the truck stop, he would have done what he wanted to do and then just fled the area.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, and that, that's – especially when you consider – you're talking about the risk they were taking. Again, this was not a, a remote forest. This person – was, was doing all that work to conceal those bodies with semi-trucks pulling up you know, in and out of a truck wash 100 feet from them, people playing in their backyards 100 feet in the other direction. Like, like All this is happening around them and they're doing it. The only reason to do that is typically what I, what I like to say is not necessarily that people know that this individual was with the victims right before they died. But that this individual thinks people might know that he was with the victims right before they died. So so say say whatever, say person X sees you know, the boys cross the pipe and go in there, and person X gets out of, out of their vehicle, you know, walks across people's yards, walks across the pipe, which is in broad daylight view of the Mayfair apartments, walks into the woods, and then ends up killing the boys, and then is like, oh shit. I don't know if anyone saw me do that. You know, if they weren't going there with the intention of killing them, which I don't believe they did, you know, so so now they think, I think people know that I was with them. So that explains the risk and the concealment in the fact that, okay, I've got to make sure when people come here to look that this is not where they find the boys' bodies because someone could say, hey, I just saw you go in there and now the bodies are there. I think that's why the we see that level of concealment And I I think that's why we see even the bikes thrown into the bayou as part of the concealment, because this person needed to have a a backup plan. If somebody said, hey, I saw you going in there, they could say, yeah, I was searching. I didn't find him in there. Whereas, you know, if they find the boy's bodies very clearly and quickly and they were there, then they're obviously going to get pegged for the crime. So it's, it's it's a way for them to get to put some distance between themselves, both both geographic distance and time away from them to delay the the bodies being found so that they can they're not they're not known to be the last people with them in that location and and it all comes back to there being a a personal relationship with them there's someone that people would expect to be with those boys at that time which is typically you know someone who knows them
0: now a lot of people would say in this cast of characters because of the investigation like you're you're making all these great points of why it was so or not why but the fact that it was such a dis I don't even know what the word is a, a shit storm uh of an investigation but you have an individual like the guy in Bojangles what, what's your thought after looking into this case now on, on an individual like that I, I think that there's Mr. Bojangles is a is a
1: red herring uh we we kind of broke it down on the podcast during season five um about the timing and the terrain. And then as you'll see on the TV series, we actually, we actually brought in, um, an, an ex special forces person that, that navigates terrain like that for a living and had them make the actual run that, that the Bojangles man would have had to make. And, and ultimately the, the determination was that there's just no way that this guy had any connection to the crime whatsoever for, for a number of reasons. I mean, the blood that was on them well there wasn't any blood on the boys the way they were killed uh and even what we found in from our you know film in the TV series was the mud um there wouldn't have been any mud on them either and and you'll see again the, the when your listeners are listening to this they will have already seen it and you'll see this weekend why that's the case
2: is it because you could have done everything from and and not be in the water?
1: No, it's because the water, so we went in very similar conditions when the water was murky and gross and the you, know, you, you have to cross the water to get, you have to cross two creeks actually to get to Bojangles if you were taking the route from the crime scene to follow the bayou all the way down there and we expected our, our special forces guy to come out covered and caked in mud like Mr. Bojangles was, but when he came out he was perfectly clean and it was because of the water from crossing the bayou actually just it just rinsed all that mud right off of him. And we 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 tried a few things. We're like, "How was that possible?" But that's just the way that it worked out. Is is once you cross the bayou to go into the Bojangles, you come out. No matter how much we caked mud on him, once you came out the other side, you were clean. So most likely, we determined, uh, which you don't necessarily see it on the show, but we determined in the process was where this guy probably came from was from the 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 open field. To the uh, It would be the south of, of the Bojangles restaurant. There's a little ditch there, and the guy probably stumbled through that ditch on his way to the restaurant, and there you can get yourself covered in mud. So the,
2: the boys are placed in the water for concealment. The bikes, two bicycles belonging to two of the boys, are placed in the water for concealment as well. What do, and this might not be important because it may have already been left elsewhere beforehand, but wasn't Christopher Byers on a skateboard at some point that evening, and was that skateboard ever located or or again, if it's even important to the case?
1: Yeah, I mean he was on a skateboard at some point and it was located. I think it was found um just down the road from his house you know well his well his dad Mark Byers excuse me well his dad Mark Byers actually found him riding the skateboard down the middle of the road. That's why he took him home and gave him the whipping so you know he was off the skateboard at that point. There was another indication that he was riding, and earlier than that, riding a skateboard around with a girl named Lakeisha Freeman down the road from him. But there's no no indication of him being on the skateboard after he was punished for it. But, you know, the the bikes, though, the bikes where they were found helps paint a very clear picture of the profile of our unsub, which, which really is another thing that should have tipped police off they were going the wrong way. So unless – so the boys leave their bikes on the – On the ground south of the Bayou, they don't. The bikes never cross the Bayou with them, so they go over there. So the killer finds the boys, you know where they're at, and kills them. Now, presumably, the killer didn't have murder in mind when they went that way. I don't. I don't think anybody went across that pipe thinking I'm going to kill these three boys right now. I think it just happened out of out of rage, or it was you know probably started as a mistake. But my point is they wouldn't have thrown the bikes into the bayou yet. The bikes got thrown into the bayou as part of concealment, which tells you after the boys were killed and after the boys were put into the water and their crime scenes concealed, after that the killer throws the bikes in the water, which tells you that the killer came and went from the neighborhood, not the highway where, the West Memphis three came and went from that. They were saying right from like the truck wash from the, from the highway from over in Marion, the killer had to, when, when they exited the crime scene, went back across the bike, the, uh, the pipe sees the bikes there and knows those bikes are going to be a clear tip off that that's where the boys are. So they throw the bikes into the Bayou. So no one knows to go look in that direction.
2: And you talked about your test of caking the guy in mud and having him run through, um, run through the water and so on and so forth talk about your the interesting test you did regarding was it was it pig or chicken that you did in the in the water down there
1: yeah so we and this was this was prior to the the filming of the tv series we just did this when i started my investigation uh myself and and mike my uh co-host and producer and our music guy shane yoder who happens to be from tennessee not far from there we all spent a week in west memphis and You know, I I looked at the medical evidence, and I, you know, there's there's the theory out there, and what seems to be pretty much scientific proof proven evidence that most of the 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 injuries on the boys came post mortem from animal activity, namely from turtles. And then people say, "Well, that's crazy. That would never happen." And you know, the, the the people who believe the West Memphis Three are guilty fight that. So I wanted to know two things. First, I wanted to know: a Are there turtles in this bayou? And b How will those turtles react to flesh in the bayou? So the first thing we did is we went and we bought a couple of uh, just raw chickens, tied them to ropes, set up GoPro cameras, and we said, all right, I'm going to throw these in the water. The GoPro battery will last about four hours, and then we'll come back and pull these out and see what we find. Throw the chickens in the water. When we go walking back four hours later, we see turtles everywhere just scatter, just away from the chicken which was pretty shocking. And then we pull the chickens out of the water and there's nothing in four hours. There was nothing left of those chickens, but a skeleton. And so we, we go back and we pull the GoPro footage and sure as shit within 20 minutes of us putting that meat in the water, the turtles start coming and it's, it's all turtle It's not big snapper turtles. Like you'd think It's a lot of red eared sliders, uh, some snapping turtles, several different species, but they, they, they smell that flesh and go right to it and start ripping it off the bone immediately. So what that what that tells me is, you know, for, so you, you can argue whether, okay, this was turtles or it wasn't turtles. But what I was trying to prove or disprove is, is it possible to throw flesh into that creek and that bayou and not have turtles attack it? And the answer is no. We did that test several times, and then we eventually went and got uh, we bought a sixty pound pig and put a pig in the water so we could have because we couldn't work with the chickens they they ate it too fast, pigs a little closer to human flesh, and sure enough, we watched them doing just exactly what we see with the boys. They're going for soft areas, going for the crotch, the inner thighs, the face, the ears, the turtles were just chomp, yeah, those turtles were just chomping and chewing on that pig, so you can still try and argue that you know that that wasn't animal activity, but I will maintain based on what we discovered. That it's literally impossible to put any kind of meat into that bayou and not have turtles attack it. And then once we also learned how they feed, at one point we did, uh, we put a turtle upstream and one downstream, about 50 feet apart. Because, you know, we have the theory, the way the boys were positioned in the bayou, you know, Chris Byers and, and Stevie Branch had much more activity, many more wounds than Michael Moore. Well, they were downstream of him. So, if they feed by scent, my theory was, if I put a chicken upstream and one downstream, the one downstream should get more damage than the one upstream because they're, you know, they're they're following the scent upstream, and the first one they come to is going to get it the worst. And sure enough, that's what we found. That, you know, if, if we had two in the water, one fifty feet further north than the or further upstream than the other one, the first chicken would get eaten to the bone. And you would only find in that same period of time only a few bites, and the one that was further upstream. But if but if you only put one in, then that one obviously gets the full brunt of it. So that explains why you have the de- the the demasculation of or emasculation of Christopher Byers, the um, how badly uh, Stevie Branson's face was chewed up, and the inner thighs of Byers, and all those injuries where Michael Moore didn't sustain as much. It's because the way they feed is they follow the scent upstream and when they did that the first one they came to was christopher byers a few feet away from him was stevie branch that's where the feeding frenzy is 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 horrible as that is to talk about it was occurring and then you know michael moore was still 25 feet further upstream so not as many made it you know they're not going to leave a viable food source to get to another one
2: okay so and this takes us back again bob to the podcast there were some pretty aggressive and have been pretty aggressive allegations against Terry Hobbs, and I'm sure most people are well aware of those. And maybe he is the one responsible for the deaths of these children. I certainly don't know. But part of his alibi or part of the story we've always been told involves another man named David Jacoby. You had some pretty strong opinions of David Jacoby that you voiced on your show. Could you could you tell us a little bit more about uh, David Jacoby and, and your your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I, I actually um, and it's going to air here on the podcast in the next few weeks. Um, I I actually conducted besides my multiple trips down to Arkansas to meet with with David and and to have conversations with him and to to convince him to do an interview. But I, I ended up recording about a two-hour interview. I actually videoed it, so we're actually going to put it on our YouTube channel as well. Um, it's the only and longest interview with – because he's, he's been interviewed a little bit here and there. But it's the only full-length full, full length interview with Dave Jacoby that's ever occurred uh, that we're going to put out. And I think when when you hear that, you, you'll see some of it in the series, and the TV series, but more so when you hear this interview with him you'll you'll realize that this guy had nothing to do with this. You know, there's he doesn't fit the profile at all. This is a guy, he's got seven children. Um, you know, actually spoke with his ex wife, and the biggest complaint anybody has with him uh from the day from his mother and his ex wife were the fact that he was he would never discipline the kids, could never bring himself to harm a kid. Um even even his own when they were in trouble, you know, and his his mom and his stepmom says, Oh, that's why some of the kids are you know, getting into trouble because he never disciplined him enough. Um, but, then, but then when you hear everything that David did to try to help the defense investigators, it, it really becomes very apparent that this guy has no idea what happened, not to mention just the raw emotion from him. But, you know, he one thing that, that I like to cite that a lot of people don't realize, David Jacoby actually allowed himself to be hypnotized to try to help remember. And this was part of Amy Berg's team that did the West of Memphis. You know, he was working with, with John Douglas and, you know, he's, he's very emotional about it. He was very close with Stevie and he wants to know what happened. He has a hard time believing that Terry would have anything to do with it. And so of course they're trying to get him to trace down a timeline. And they said, well, would you agree to be hypnotized? And he said, yeah, whatever, whatever it takes. So imagine, if this is a guy that actually had some knowledge of the crime, do you know how da- think about how dangerous it would be for that person to let themselves be hypnotized and interviewed about it there's just there's just no way um, and there's there's a lot of other things that he did too to try to help along the way you know he wore a wire he let his phone be tapped to have phone conversations with Terry Hobbs yeah you know, to, to try and determine if Terry had anything to do with it. I don't think he realized at the time that they were, you know, they were also trying to figure out if David had anything to do with it. And he really kind of got left hung out to dry with West of Memphis. You know, it was, it was, uh, it made better TV for them to put out, you know, there's the the hair, the, the the hair found on the stump that they, you know, they call the Jacoby hair that, you know, his hair was found on the crime scene too. Um, but they, they really did they put it out a little bit, but they didn't really narrow it down as much as they should have for the viewers to digest the fact that that was a hair that was found on the crime scene in a public place six weeks after the crime that wasn't discovered by law enforcement. And it matches like, I don't remember like 7% of the population of the world. You know, it, it, essentially if you take the, the the odds of that belonging to any particular individual and take the amount of people that we know for a fact were on the crime scene. I don't remember the number, but it was it was it was several. It'd be something like nine of the people that were at the crime scene. That hair would have, they also couldn't have been excluded from it. So it was what it ended up doing is it ruined the guy's life. You know, he he ended up you know he would go to the grocery store and people would throw he, said, he told me a story about someone throwing a head of lettuce at him at the at the Walmart when he's trying to buy his groceries calling him a child killer spray painting child killer on his on his car they ran him
0: out of West Memphis which is really sad because when you talk about the west of Memphis the documentary one of the things that always stuck out to me about uh David is when he was telling the story about how uh, Stevie would be doing something and Terry would be getting angry uh keep that up I'm going to bust your butt I think he talks about marbles or something. And he, he would talk, uh, and it seems like this would be a occurrence that happened multiple times where Stevie is getting on Terry Hobbs's nerve and then David would kind of come to the rescue. Well, if I talk to Stevie, if I play with Stevie, then Terry Hobbs will get his focus off of Stevie. Right. And I, I don't think that once we
1: air our my full interview with him, especially the video version of it, Anybody that can watch that and watch this man struggle through the, his emotions and what he went through and how desperate he is to find out who killed those boys, if you can watch that and still say that you think he had anything to do with this, then more power to you because I can't. I mean, I'm I'm a, I I would I would let David Jacoby babysit my kids any day of the week. He's he is he's an extremely Kind man, dedicated father, dedicated grandfather, and and there's just absolutely no way he had anything to do with this.
0: Now, as far as West of Memphis documentary, what what do you make of the Hobbs family secret? It's it's hard to put any weight into that.
1: Um, it made good TV. Maybe it's true. I mean, certainly that you know that that guy came forward with that information, but uh, I think there's just too much at stake. You know, there was they were offering such a big big reward it seems unlikely to me that if terry hobbs actually did this that he would just share that information with 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 his family it, it, to where they're just discussing it over a game of pool in the basement or whatever so um, i don't know it's it's possible but i don't I, personally i don't think it's all that all that credible
2: While your subscription is active, what is interesting, though, in regards to somebody like Terry Hobbs or maybe even John Mark Byers, is some of the injuries to the boys which I, I get gets a little dicey when you're trying to look through all of this because we do know that there there may have been marks and bite marks and, and different things that, that occurred to the, the bodies after the fact. But some of this appears to be reactionary. And what Mar Leverett pointed out in, an, I believe, it was an article in the Arkansas Times in 1994 – this is still when a lot of the area really believed these teenagers did this. She points out in a, in a wonderfully written article about the, the criminal problems that buyers and Terry Hobbs ran into. And some of that in regards to Terry Hobbs shows signs of abuse on other people and that's where I have a hard time. You know, I go, I go back to the injuries of reactionary, and what you said earlier about there's no reason to believe that that the person went into those woods with the intent to kill, but may have reacted to something. It went too far, and maybe now I have to, I, I've, I've accidentally killed this one boy, and now I need to kill these other two boys. Yeah, I mean that—that's my
1: theory of it's exactly my theory of what happened. That there was probably a punishment of some kind that that went too far, and then now you got two witnesses. And I mean, it takes a a sociopath, if not a psychopath, to to then turn onto two innocent eight year old kids and intentionally kill them. Uh, but it's it's the only way that crime scene makes sense to me. Well, what do you make of Mark Byers? in the lie detector. I, I don't think it matters, honestly. And that's, you know, if you look at, there's a lot of people, there's still a lot of people. Matter of fact, we had people that were, you know, actively involved with our investigation on our Facebook page, um, you know, our, our groups and stuff that were kind of friends of the show during this case that knew the case really well, that eventually just kind of got pissed off and wouldn't talk to me anymore because I, I didn't agree with them that Mark Byers is a likely suspect. But the thing about Mark Byers is, he's alibied. I think Nick mentioned it earlier. He's alibied 100% through the entire time. And, and I interviewed someone that no one's ever heard from before that you would have seen on the show, or you're going to see on the show this weekend. And that's Ryan Clark, who's Chris Byers brother. And, you know, he was, I'll tell you right now, he does not like Mark Byers. He's even told me that he thinks Mark Byers had something to do with it. But then when he walks me through the day, he, you know, so, so forget everything we know up till six o'clock. So at five 30, Mark finds Chris riding the skateboard down the middle of the road, grabs him, takes him home. That's when he gives him the spanking and makes him clean under the carport. That's confirmed by, uh, by, by Chris's mother, Melissa Byers. She told police the same thing that he came home. He got the whooping. He was cleaning under the carport. Mark leaves to go pick up Ryan at court. Uh, and Ryan says, that's exactly what happened. And then the thing was, and Ryan explained to me, when they got home, how that went down. Now, mind you, he doesn't like Mark and and part of him believes Mark has something to do with it because he just he thinks, you know, he said Mark was abusive and didn't like Chris. But he he told me the story of coming home and walking inside and they were gonna go to dinner, and Mark comes in and wants to know where Chris is at. He's mad because Chris was supposed to be cleaning the carport. Ryan witnessed his mother say, He's outside. I just saw him. And Mark's like, Well, he's not out there. And she said, well, well, maybe he's upstairs, and Ryan goes upstairs and looks, and they start looking around the neighborhood. And from that point forward, Mark was with either Ryan or Melissa or both throughout the entire rest of the evening while they're searching. So it it, it, it seems to me impossible for someone to think that, you know, what kind of theory could you have about when he found him and killed him if when he comes home with Ryan – Melissa, his wife and Chris's mom says, while you were gone with Ryan, I saw Chris outside. So we know Chris is home alive and safe at that point. And when he gets home, Chris is already gone. So there's just there's no way to, to make Mark Myers fit into the suspect pool.
2: And then he's actively looking for Chris with another person throughout the entire evening and night. That's what one thing we were able to do on our show was just point out there's just no time for him to have done this. And he's also the one that's, like, raising the the flags here. The He's sounding the alarm bells because I think they're right. out driving around, and he stops and talks to uh, an officer and says, hey, uh, my kids, we can't find him. We were supposed to go to dinner. He was supposed to be home. We've been out looking for him. We can't find him anywhere. Should I report him missing? And I believe that officer says, you know, it's, it's still – it was still maybe uh, twilight at that time, I guess, and we still got a little bit of daylight left. And so, why don't you just, you know, take it easy? He'll probably turn up. If if an hour or so from now you still feel the same way, call it in. And I and he's the one that phones the police at a, what about eight o'clock? I think it was around that time yeah. period to to yep. notify that that Chris is missing. And on top of it, he seems clueless that two other boys are missing because, um, Michael Moore's mother comes across the street and then says, uh, to the officer. Yeah, I, my, my son is missing as well. I haven't seen him since this time. And when you really start putting together the, the time frame of these possible, and I, I do want to stress this though, these possible eyewitness accounts of having seen the boys, because I don't know that I fully believe Every single one of them. And we all know Mm -hmm. from doing this for a long time that eyewitness accounts are, are pretty unreliable in general, but I do believe that some of these sightings occurred and that they, that they were correct. And I'm not going to willy nilly pick which ones are right and wrong, but it doesn't allow for the timeline for anything to, for, for Mark Byers to have done anything to Chris let alone the other two boys as well. It just it just doesn't fit. It's it's damn near impossible.
1: Right, and the only way, you know, there, there's a theory called the manhole theory out there, and there there's a bunch of different crazy theories that you know he like rode a boat down the bayou late at night to put the bodies in there, and it just, it just, it just, it just in my opinion, those those are just not possible. You know, like I said, you know that, that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, he just, you know, Mark's problem is, and I've met Mark. I interviewed him. You hear from him quite a bit on the podcast um, during season five. But, you know, he's, you know, he's changed his story a few times. He's a very dynamic guy. He's not, you can tell by his past, he's not a great guy. And so he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And so I think he, you know, people love to hate him. But at the same time, you know, it, it, to me, that's no different than Damien Eccles. You know, people will say, well, Damien's changed his story. He was a liar and he was a Satan worshiper. It's like, well. You know, even if he was a liar and even if he was a Satan worshiper, that still doesn't mean that he killed those boys. There's still no evidence that he actually killed those boys.
2: Well, and that's what's funny, too, is when people look at these different cast of characters, as the captain has called them and says, well, this person has changed their story. This person has changed their story. That's why I don't like him. The police have changed their story the whole time and changed other people's story to fit their narrative. And then you have people that still believe that the, the three of them did it. I mean, you have, you know, you mentioned the Hollingsworth uh, earlier, but we have we have two people that and Captain said, well, what else? What else evidence do we have in regards to Damien Eccles? Well, a, a problem for Eccles that he ran into at trial is we have the Hollingsworth clan who says, I saw Damian Eccles and Dominique Tier out, and they were dirty, they were muddy, and it was it was late at night on the night that the boys were killed. And then the police have to change that that story a little bit themselves, and they said, you know, Jason Baldwin. Well, he's he's a smaller guy, he's short, he's thin, he's got long hair. That you probably saw uh, Damian with with Jason Baldwin. And you're mistaken. It wasn't Dominique's here,
1: right? Even though Narlene is saying, "Nope, I know my niece. I know for sure that was her." But they still present that as evidence that that he saw Jason. Not to mention their whole story of there being—I think at one point it ends up being like nine or twelve people in that little hatchback. You know, as as the story <laughs> progresses,
2: and they're reporting different times too. Like I, I believe there's the, the one of the witnesses is like an hour and a half difference from from one of the other ones. They they sat they they probably sat together, came up with some kind of story because again it's the reward money that's this fueling some of of this uh, confusion around the case.
1: Well, there was a per- this old case was a perfect situation. It, it was it was just the wrong set of circumstances and the wrong set of people to create this chaos because you've got you know a, a complicated case that's well it was made complicated. And then, and then you have all of these people. You know, their emotions are running high. Everybody wants to solve the case, and then you throw this big fat reward out to a whole bunch of poor people, and and just and just it's like throwing fire on on gasoline. It, it just it just ignites.
0: But when you're talking about the victimology, it seems like you you believe you learned a couple things. One that these murders took place by one single individual. You gave us the reasons you believe for that. You also believe that this person was connected to the boys somehow, but also connected to that neighborhood somehow. You gave us your evidence reasons of those. Is there any other things that you guys have come to conclusions about the profile of this murderer?
1: There was a big reveal. You know, I've worked with retired FBI profiler, Jim Clemente for about five years now, and he's been kind of a mentor to me. And and I think I did a pretty good job profiling the crime scene. His profile and mine were were pretty close, actually. Once he finally did his, um, but Jim is an expert for a reason. And what you'll you will see in the TV series is Jim catching something that I never caught before. And and I guess it doesn't necessarily. This may not answer your question, but it's interesting along those same lines. Um. When he was was going through all the evidence with with Terry Hobbs, you know, what, his timeline, what we have, what's verifiable, and the fact that Terry called the police from Catfish Island when he picked Pam up, um, which we we knew that is what happened. Not till nine o'clock he calls the police and reports him missing, and then has the police meet him there. You know, I always thought, you know, that's, you know, we always thought, you know, how Cal, obviously this guy must not have a big concern. Why did he wait so long to call the police? And um, Jim watched it and watched, a I watched a light bulb go off in his head. And you will have seen that on the TV series when he tells me to hit pause and said, wait a minute. He called from Catfish Island and he didn't go home. He waited, he met them in the parking lot there, which I hadn't thought much of. And he's like, "Why wouldn't they go home? Pam's son is missing. His stepson is missing. They're waiting for him to go home. They're terrified. Where would you want to be in that situation? at home, right? Waiting for him to come home. And he says, "This guy didn't want the police in his house that and, and, and Jim just I mean just poignantly, that is a red that is a huge red flag. This guy was calculated for some reason. Terry Hobbs, the evidence seems to indicate, did not want to meet the police at his house, did not want the police at his house, and that's why he waited to call it Catfish Island, and that's why he stayed at Catfish Island to take the report instead of telling them to meet him back at the house. Um, so again, that doesn't necessarily answer your question about the profile, but it, it just that's where my, my mind
0: went when you said that. Well, I think your mind also can go to the idea that if if my son was missing and i called the police i'd say oh well meet us back at the house cuz maybe he showed up but if you're responsible for these murders you would know that they're not going to show up right exactly right and
1: if if you uh if you've seen at this point again you haven't seen the show yet but you've seen some of the trailers and if you 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 see a little bit of that moment i'm describing in the trailers and then you you also see Me sitting at a desk, looking up at the sky with tears in my eyes, trying to compose myself. That was that was that moment when all of a sudden it occurred to me what Pam Hobbs must have been going through when she was forced to sit and stay at Catfish Island and wait for the police when her son was missing and she couldn't get home to see if he was there.
2: Well, there's a lot of thought, too, that he never wanted to call police, that he only did so because Pam questions him when he arrives to pick her up well, did, did you call the police? And he says, no. And then you're right. It's very calculated for him to deter, to decide to call them there, you know, to, to, I got to end her worry by phoning the police, but I'm going to do it here right now and stay here. As you said, that's very interesting.
1: Yeah. The staying here was the big part, you know, cause I've heard people say, well, maybe their phone wasn't working or whatever. And, and he and in other interviews that said they did have a working phone. But yeah, the staying here is 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 the big thing. That's you know why why not go home and I and it just I'd never thought about it in that context until Jim brought that up and it's I've had a hard time letting go of it ever since.
0: Oh no, and I I like the fact that you brought up when I was looking at the trailer. There's this moment that you just talked about where I was like, wait, it was Bob, teary eyed because we've hung out uh, several times at, at crime con and fun events. So we're always upbeat and it's good to see everybody. And I saw this clip and I went, wow, I think this gets really emotional, but I, I also think it's important with these cases to have people that are emotional about the cases and that, that, that these cases actually matter to them. And it's just not somebody collecting a paycheck to investigate a crime for TV and and that's one of the main reasons I'm very excited to check this do you want to call it documentary the docu series yeah you're going to you're definitely going to
1: see some emotion out of me uh that I wasn't thrilled about you know that I'm on I'm on you're going to see me on camera crying a couple times um which of course you know being the big tough burly man that I am wasn't wasn't thrilled with but it's the reality you know the this docu series it's taking you, the viewers, along with me while I'm doing the investigation. And you and you get to see what that really looks like. You get to see what it looks like when I sit down and, you know, call it an interview. But I'm speaking with someone who lost their child, who lost their brother. And it just, it wears on. And I'll tell you, as the, you know, we, we filmed for about three months, and as the there, there was definitely a fatigue factor. It's just so much sadness and so much hurt and pain that it got to be, you know, a lot of the a lot of the interviews and stuff we filmed later on. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a wreck because it's just, it's it just, it just weighs on me so much. I just so badly want to find the truth for these people and finally find some justice.
2: Now. Bob, there, there are obviously a lot of question marks in regards to Terry Hobbs, but are there, is there anybody else, any other persons, any other people that in the eyes of Bob Ruff should be persons of interest and why? Uh,
1: there are a few others, uh, but what we really determined throughout the course of this, the, the filming of the TV series and our active investigation last year is when we filmed it was this case is only going to be solved one way and that's through science. There's we're not going to solve this case by by interviewing more people, by finding more witnesses. There's just everybody's there's too much time has passed. There's too much motivation, there's been too much motivation with money and with media and memories have shifted. There's too much drug use and too much alcoholism and and too many people with agendas. Stories are changing, but we have breaks in science. We have new technology that can actually solve this case. And that's what it's going to come down to. So it doesn't necessarily matter who the 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 persons of interest are. It doesn't necessarily matter if you think Terry Hobbs did it or didn't do it. I'm not saying if he did or didn't. I don't know. I, but I, I'll tell you that he's someone that I think needs further investigation. And what it's go, gonna take is to convince Scott Ellington, the district attorney, that that holds the keys, he's the gatekeeper to the evidence to release the evidence and allow us to use new technology and science to test it. And that is what is going to solve the case. And that is the only thing that is going to finally solve this case.
2: Well, in the statistics show this to be true, that the younger a victim, the more likely that they it has to be someone on their inner circle. And these victims were all three, eight years old. If you take a victim that's one or two it's almost somebody inside the household because the younger you are the smaller your social circle is you just don't have that much going on in your life and the, the interesting thing here is with these with these three victims with the three boys you're really not talking about a whole lot of circles because you you're probably looking for the common themes throughout them when you talk about victimology okay they went to the same school they lived in the same neighborhood they they were in the same uh all three of them weren't cub scouts i believe and then you also have the the because they're all three friends uh just their immediate families in general it, it feels to me like if this killer is known to the kids and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's got to be somebody in one of those circles.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, the, the the biggest, the saddest part about this whole case is that the West Memphis police didn't do their job on day one. I think, I, I think all of this mystery, I, most of us would have never heard about this case. I think it would have been easily and quickly solved. Had they done their job on day one,
2: they did bad police work to begin with, but they, they also were not, Skilled in in a homicide or the homicide of 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 three children, but but the the thing that always fascinates me with these smaller police departments that can't fight their way out of a wet paper bag, they they turn down assistance from from agencies that know better, that know what they're doing. I mean, we have statements of the state police saying that no, they didn't want our help down there in in uh, West Memphis, and. The F, as you pointed out, the FBI tried to get involved. Yeah, it's it's
1: sad. You know, I worked in government for a long time. I was a firefighter for for sixteen years. Um, so I worked alongside with uh, you know, a lot of police officers and law enforcement. But I'll just tell you, you know, that the there's definitely uh, a marking of territory that goes on, and all that. And it's the same thing with the fire service. You know, I I've been at fires where we need help. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough enough apparatus. And so, you know, I, you know, when I was in my younger years in the fire service, I, you know, as the chief, you know, call for mutual aid, ask the neighboring town to come over here and help us, which they would happily do. And you had this mentality where, and we're talking early 2000s now, not, not terribly far removed from this case where, you know, they would, a house would end up burning down because they refused to call for help because they didn't want to admit to another municipality that they needed their help. You know, that, that culture luckily, luckily and thankfully changed over the course of my career. And, of course, for me, I was the chief by the end, so I was the one that got to make those decisions. Um, but it was the same thing in law enforcement. I think that's a lot of what you see. It's just it's just people pissing on fire hydrants. You know, just, This is my territory, and I don't need you coming in here to tell me how to do my job. But the saddest part about it is, besides that even, is this case was made more complicated than it actually was. The West Memphis Police Department had certainly didn't dealt with homicides before, But this was a a triple homicide of children. This is different. And that's the problem is they looked at it like it was different. But what they needed to do was investigate it the same way they investigate every other case. And had they done that, I think that we would have had a resolution very quickly after the boys' bodies were found.
2: And obviously we all still have the question of who did this, but what questions do you still have about the case?
1: You know, that's. I think that's the only one that's left for me. I mean, there, there's a lot of minutia. I mean, you can get in. I mean, every the the Callahan website is one of the greatest resources ever made available for any true crime case ever. You know, literally, you can go through every single document in the case, and that's and and, and what's not on there, I've I've viewed and copied myself when I went into the DA's office to go through their files. So you know, I've looked at all, and, and certainly there are a million unanswered questions, but it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier that what what I've realized is there's not going to be a glaring answer in those files. There's not going to be a glaring answer in a new witness. You know, we, we, we found new witnesses. You're going to hear from people this weekend that you've never heard from before, but that's not what's going to solve the case. That what's going to solve the case is going to have to be forensic. So, so my big question is who did it? The answer is sitting right there in front of you and, the, and all we need to do collectively as a a people on both sides of this that just want the truth is to force that issue is to convince Scott Ellington and the state's attorney's office to allow the evidence to be tested and allow us to find the truth.
0: Look, when you watch West of Memphis, you you just want to strangle the guy. They're basically saying, look, we have enough evidence to convict these guys, but there's resources. And then he even says that he hasn't even dove into all the evidence. So... When he makes that statement, he's basically telling the community, we believe these three individuals are responsible for murdering three eight-year-old children, and we're going to release them to the public. To me, that, that's the most bullshit I've ever seen. Like, if you actually thought that these three individuals killed these three eight-year-olds, you would never release them to the community ever, because there will always be a threat to the children. All they did was, we want you to uh, admit that you're you're guilty of the crime, so you can't sue us for the time that we made you serve. Right? It's the Alfred plea
1: is it's one of the worst pieces of our criminal justice system, and it's not what it was ever intended to be. You know, it was essentially the Alfred plea came from a case where you know the the you weren't allowed to plead guilty to something. If you were innocent, if that makes sense. So that's where that that's where that plea came from, was a guy that was like, Well, I'll plead guilty to take this deal, but I didn't do it. While well, a judge was not allowed to accept that plea, this ruling came in to where they said, Okay, for this certain circumstance we'll allow you to plead guilty but still maintain your innocence. And then that got turned into what we now know as the Alfred plea, where prosecutors' offices use it as a as a punt, as an easy way out to say, okay, well, I'll dangle your freedom in front of you. You can go home and not have any more risk of being in prison, but you have to plead guilty and be a convicted murderer for the rest of your life in order for that to happen. And that way I get to say, we got the right guys. I don't have to further investigate this because look, they pled guilty.
0: When I see uh, Stevie branch, Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, these three, eight year old victims are victims. Multiple times. They're, they're victims. Uh, one of uh, abuse. Then there are victims. They're murdered. Then there are victims in the sense that the whole case becomes about three other victims. And then, then they become victims again by, by the courts, not standing up and saying that we, we believe that these individuals are guilty. If you, if you thought they were guilty, you would never left, let them out, but you let them out. You have them make a plea where now the case is closed, and in the eyes of the law, they're not going to investigate this anymore. So we're never going to know. All right. Well, that's what we're hoping to
1: change with it, and this will a lot of what I keep saying about the Ellington, the forensic evidence will make a lot more sense after this weekend when you see the when you see the series. But you know, we we we've discovered there's there's new technology out there that you know we you know I went to. California to meet with um, a forensic uh, DNA specialist that uses the MVAC DNA collection technique. And and sh- that doctor, she's convinced that if you give me this evidence, I can tell you who did it. And we we can't get Scott Ellington to pull his head out of the sand long enough to allow that testing to be done.
0: Well, but it's all going to take public pressure. And that's my only argument against Baldwin Eccles and Miss Kelly is that you stated in a documentary that you could do more once you get out. And if this is true, like you said, that there's evidence that can be tested, these three individuals should be yelling from the rooftops and using their platforms to get the community behind this to to stir um, possibly some movement. Because like you like I said, if there's no public pressure, normally nothing gets done.
1: Well, and that's what you're going to see this weekend is all three of them asking for this DNA testing. And that's the reason why uh, Damien and, and Jason participated in the in the docu-series. You know, they're not making any money off of this or anything. They're a part of it because they believe that our process here in our investigation could actually lead to the truth and, and actually figure out who killed those three little boys. And that's why they agreed to participate. And there's only one person that's holding up that testing right now. And it's not – Damien, it's not Jason, it's not Jesse. They've all said they're all for it. There's only one person stopping this case from being solved, and that's Scott Ellington.
2: How about a little recommended viewing? You guessed it. It's the highly anticipated, the forgotten West Memphis 3, available on-demand on oxygen watch our friend bob ruff on the forgotten west memphis three
0: and i've had a chance to watch both parts i'd give it five bottle caps out of five and until next week be good be kind and don't let it. Uh.